0: But I don't I really don't have any regrets. I really don't. I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to. I've tried my hardest every single time. I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all. So that for me is enough.
1: Hi everyone, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm James. I'm Jonathan. And we are here to expose our terrible predictions for Roland Garros. By and large, well, mine. by
0: and large, I will say that I got the winners right in both the men's and the women's as per our last episode, once the quarterfinals were already set. And I don't think I would have remembered that had it not been for... At underscore love underscore thirty underscore,
1: mm-hmm. who
0: pointed that out to me today. So thank you for giving me something. You got to... the
1: finalists right, not just the winners. Yeah, I you got, got both. All four finalists. I think I got literally everything wrong these past two weeks. Um, I will proudly own that. This is why we tend not to make predictions because it's uh, a so embarrassing, and b <laughs> because they're like they're irrelevant after a few days.
0: Simona Halep finally, at long last, conquered her Grand Slam final demons, beating Sloane Stevens to win her first Grand Slam title. And then Rafael Nadal won his 11th French Open and career 17, as far as total Grand Slams are concerned.
1: Yeah, let, so let's start with Simona. Uh, we say finally, but a lot of players have lost three or more Grand Slam finals before finally winning one. On the women's side, you know, people were mentioning Kim Clijsters. Yana Novotna. Right. Very famously. And then on the men's side, of course, Sir Andrew Murray. Lost four, I believe. Yvonne Lindell, who was an absolute titan of the game. Ivanovic. Mm-hmm. So it was, uh, what, four years coming since her first. But Simona wasn't wasn't exactly losing Grand Slam Finals badly. No, All four of her finals have gone three sets. She was so, so close against Maria in her very first one. She's always put up a fight.
0: She came so close last year at the French Open, being up a set and 3-1 on Yelena Ostapenko before she got a little bit nervy. Mm-hmm. Didn't To my mind, didn't play poorly. Ostapenko played out of her mind and seized control of that match. Right. Much in the same way that Simona did this year to Sloane I know.
1: How about this mirror image? Because Simona lost the first set, looked down and out. Not that she was playing badly, but Sloane just looked incredible. Mm-hmm. And then Sloane went up to love in the second set, and most of us were like, well, what can you do? Sloane looks great. <laughs> it looked like a foregone conclusion.
0: More than what can you do, it was what can Simona do to change the flow of the match
1: mm-hmm.
0: because what we hadn't seen is a player able to unsettle Sloan we saw Madison Keys we'll talk about that a little bit more when we do a little bit of a look back at how we got here but we saw Madison Keys play essentially a carbon copy of her final against Sloan at the US mm. Open she played a little bit better the score was a little bit better but watching that match it was one way traffic the entire way and I kept thinking, well, what can she do and why isn't she doing something different to change the course of this match, to do something different, Mm -hmm. anything? And through a set and two games, that's what we saw with Simona.
1: Right. So in the first set, it was a lot of Simona was obviously here to hit. And she was kind of playing a game that Sloane was quite comfortable with. She was moving well, but she was sort of trying to Hit just as hard as Sloan in the rallies. Almost or even out-hit her. Right. And Simona has weapons, but not those kind of weapons.
0: I'll offer one of the very few retractions on this show. <laughs> what? Because I said to you that Simona had as easy power or just as much power as Sloane mm, did right. on the previous episode. And I think that was obviously not the case. (laughs)
1: When you see them (laughs) side by side.
0: Not that Simona doesn't have power, but it's obviously a lot more forced. It takes a lot more effort. Mm -hmm. And kudos to Steve Tinier, because if you read his write-up ahead of the final, his preview piece, he said that this final, and it was the sentence that got me most excited about this final, this final was going to be decided on who would have the courage to be aggressive. To take hold of mm-hmm. the match. And I was like, well, yes, that, that makes absolute sense. But that's a cat and mouse game that I know Simona is going to take that bait. And I know that's exactly what Sloane wants. Mm-hmm. And Brianna, for the tennis, she pointed out toward the middle part of the third set that Sloane found herself in a very uncomfortable position. Because while she's able to play with great power and dictate, it's not what she's most comfortable at doing.
1: As Well, especially when she's under pressure.
0: yes. And so once Simona was able to change the tenor and course of that match, and Sloane had to wheel and come again and troubleshoot her way through it and came to the conclusion, seemingly, that she had to dictate more, that's when we saw the Sloane-Stevens that was totally
1: different from what we'd seen to that point. Mm -hmm. And so in the first set, Sloane just looked like what we've come to expect is vintage Sloane. Her defense is just so... Um, Not everybody's defensive play is that interesting to watch. Actually, in my opinion, you know, the way that I look at tennis, that's not my favorite kind of tennis, right? Counterpunching. But she is a counterpuncher who really punches. (laughs) You know, she always seems to be moving in the right direction. Like, she reads the court really well. She's returning balls with pace. It's not just she's getting it back over the net. Like, there's real speed on these balls, And it just looked like there wasn't much that Simona could do. Like, you're not going to out-hit Sloane. You're not going to tire her out by making her run. You need to change the pace somehow.
0: When you're a rope doper like Sloane is, Mm. and still you have the reserves of huge power and the confidence to know that there is nothing that your opponent can throw at you that you can't track down, that you're not afraid of being pushed back from the baseline. You can hug the baseline and just move side to side and pick your spot to finish the point. When you know and have the confidence that the match is on your racket in that regard, it opens up so many possibilities. Mm -hmm. What Simona was able to do is deploy different spins, different bounces. You know, you saw a lot more
1: moonshots. So many... (laughs) (laughs) Right. As we got into the second set, Simona started putting... A little more air under her shots, especially like to Sloane's backhand, hitting with some more topspin. Cause I was thinking like how long is she gonna hit flat and hard on this court? Like let's see what Simona can do on a clay court, because this is supposed to be her playground, right? Like let's see some clay court tennis. We saw a lot more net play. Mm-hmm. She was intent on getting
0: to net as much as possible and finishing balls at the net. It was, for all the talk about Simona Halep being feeble-minded, not being able to troubleshoot situations, being cowed by big, big situations, this was, for me, breathtaking to watch because it's so rare that we're able to, to see an athlete be in a situation in the moment to have that big breakthrough, to take the opportunity, to go from not doing it so blatantly
1: <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: to then being able to flip the switch and just seize the moment.
1: Without the benefit of on court coaching. Yes. Right? Like there that's, was no... that's the key.
0: It, she did it yep. on her own. Because the other caveat is that people have talked about her as some sort of puppet of Darren's. Right? <laughs> that she's people think she's <laughs> right. stupid, that she can't think for herself, and that she's too reliant on Darren's on court coaching sessions. And we were asked that question in our lead up to this event who is the player? that will benefit most from not having on-court coaching and who would be hindered by it most. And we said that the easy target would be Simona Mm -hmm. for somebody who would be hindered by it most. And as it turned out from her pointing to her head after beating Kerber I believe in the quarterfinals to to what she authored in that final, this was her troubleshooting her way through her matches Mm -hmm. in ways that The narratives have told us she hasn't been able to do before. The biggest props to Simona Halep.
1: Yeah, because it was a few things. It was getting over, like, I'm down a set and a break already, and this could end really fast. And I've already lost three finals, and I know what people say about me. And so it was that, and then it was taking a beat and thinking through, what can I do to trouble this opponent? And she did it, like she executed it.
0: This very formidable opponent who is unbeaten in finals, who's having the stretch of her life in terms of winning big titles, who hasn't been troubled to this point, who's just beating everybody. Mm. And you're able to somehow come up with the goods. And I, <laughs> what I will not tolerate at this point is folks still saying that Simona Halep is not a
1: worthy number one
0: like i've I've actually seen that on Twitter. I know, this know even weekend.
1: after having won a major
0: even after and even after winning it the way she did, what more <laughs> can she do?
1: I what more? I mean, just say that you don't like her. It doesn't have to do with her being number one. You don't have to like her right like she's earned the points, she's won a major full stop.
0: She's the most consistent player on tour this year. She was knocked for not making the semis and finals of most tournaments she played this year, but she's still the Australian Open finalist. She's still the French Open champion now. And she course corrected all those things that y'all were chiding her for all these years. Y'all were ruthless to Simona Halep. <laughs> and for... we
1: were we were critical too, I'm sure. So now
0: let her have her moment. Now, if you want to have a different discussion about Not caring for Simona because of her alliances with certain Romanians for having (laughs) uh, not so great things, to put it kindly, to say about equal prize money in the past. That's a whole other matter. Mm -hmm. But if we're talking about strictly the tennis, she's absolutely a worthy number one right now. And let me tell you, I was watching that trophy ceremony and she's climbing into the stands. I'd already noticed that Tyriac was kind of sitting by himself over toward the tunnel, not with the, the Romanian, uh, what do you call it, massive <laughs> Simona's box. And when she got into that box, it's like, please, just please, just don't hug Tyriac on camera. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I've, I've come to accept that there is a certain... Mm, it is somewhat understandable that Simona has some allegiances to these Romanian people because... For somebody like Tyriac, he is so deeply embedded in Romanian tennis. Like, he's the one who's funded most of these players' careers.
1: Yeah, well, in Romanian sport in general. Like, he's an extremely powerful figure. He's the kingmaker.
0: Mm-hmm. And this is something we've talked about before. That is something that comp- complicates the issue for Simona. Do I think it's black and white? I don't. I think there are certain cultural and social contexts that are kind of lost and don't play the same as they do in North America there's also the fact that let's be real a lot of these tennis players have not had to quote serena williams a formal education that's a big part mm. of it and there's the the issue as well i believe of the history of the wta not being embedded enough in the culture of the wta that they have not done a good enough job of letting the young generations know where they come from
1: or those players not feeling a connection with that because they're not from the U.S. That's possible too.
0: So the bottom line for us, if I can speak for you, is Simona Halep is absolutely a worthy number one right now. She may have been before. Well, she was, she was worthy because she won the points. That's the way the system is. But to combat the arguments that degraded her, those are no longer valid, in my opinion. However, feel free to not like her for those reasons that we just delineated. Uh, But, like, let's not undercut her achievement, especially in this moment.
1: I'm just happy we don't have to have the, like, consistency versus major titles debate. Last year, when she reached number one, people were making this argument that consistency over every week of the tour is more or less impressive than major titles. And it's like, I'm so not interested in that. Like, I the the point is it's impressive but fans aren't turning out for consistency they're just not
0: you tweeted today so who is who is tennis twitter going to come for next right In and i was not the i was slamless... not
1: asking for suggestions that was a purely <laughs> rhetorical question because can we please i know this is not going to happen but let's retire the slamless number one or the best player who's never won a slam like i just cannot have this conversation ever again
0: Okay. I mean, to, to, you, it's something you've been guilty of in the past. Yeah. What we should keep in mind is that winning slams is not an easy thing. What we've seen in the last two years, we've seen six or seven different women win for slams for the very first time in the last two to three years. And that's kind of done away with a lot of those best slamless number one or best player to right. have never won a slam, right? That, that's kind of course corrected in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. But we've taken for granted that so many of these great champions we've seen in the past decade who've been winning multiple slams like it's no big deal. Like, that's normal. That's not.
1: (laughs) No, it's not. I grew up
0: with Sampras getting to 14 and it was like, oh my God, that will never be beaten. And then Agassi had eight and people were still trying to decide whether Agassi or Sampras was better. Mm -hmm. Like, that was an actual discussion that people were having. And there were folks who had four or five and... They had tremendous careers. The way Arantxa was talked about in 98 compared to how she's thought of now, Mm. completely different with her four slams and all those weeks at number one that she had and all those battles with Steffi Graf. So let's just appreciate these, in this case, these women's achievements because they are tremendous and consider that we're in a great space with women's tennis, with so many players able to win at any given tournament and such great depth. How did we get here to this final? Let's start with the quarterfinal results. Madison Keys beat Yulia Putintseva in straight sets. Halp beat Kerber in three sets. Halp went down a set and then was able to come back again and win two sets against Kerber. Sloane Stephens beat Kazatkina quite easily. I mean, that was the mm. win that you thought, well, well, damn. <laughs> like, there's no way Madison's going to be able to beat Sloane and Sloane's probably going to win this tournament again. And then Muguruza dismantled, just defollicled Maria Sharapova.
1: <laughs> it was it was a throttling. It was not good. Um, Muguruza... The thing is, Muguruza didn't even look perfect. Like, she didn't look flawless. Um, her serve was great. Backhand was great, as always. But Maria just... Did not really show up at all. It wasn't like a like a Wimbledon situation where Muguruza was just stunningly good. Maria hit zero winners in the second set. Her serve was a mess. Ground strokes were a mess. I mean, it was just bad. Is this some revisionist
0: history on your partner? Because you tweeted after that match. Well, damn. Who's gonna beat Muguruza? So yeah, if because she wasn't I wasn't playing. I
1: went and watched the match again, and I was like, oh, you know what? She looked really good, but not. Not like unbeatable.
0: Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about Sloan Stevens versus Madison Keys. Okay. I was disheartened by how unable Madison was to make any dent into Sloan Stevens in that semifinal.
1: I, well, she did better than the US Open final.
0: The score in this match was 6 4 6 4. After that match, well, during the second set, I thought to myself, well, maybe it's for the best that this is the last full-time tournament for Lindsay Davenport with Madison. Because while they do have a great rapport and a great relationship, and they're not parting ways on acrimonious terms, that's not the case at all, maybe she needs a new voice in her camp. Mm because I would have expected at least something different to bring to the table, considering that match was so fresh in her rearview mirror. Like Sloane was able to play essentially the exact same match.
1: Well, Madison has no plan B. There's still no plan B. She's had a long time to build one. She
0: tried to come to net, and her lack of acumen at net was evident when she did.
1: I mean, Madison's strategy is usually weather those really bad patches in most of her matches, hit through it, and, and it'll come back. And a lot of times it does. But when she's spraying balls, like it's bad.
0: And she's not able to hit through Sloane. That's not mm. an option in those matches. And Sloane is able to hang on the baseline and defend, defend, until that ball goes long or into the net, because it's going to happen. And that's exactly what happened in that match again.
1: So, I mean, not to beat up on Madison, because... She got way further than most people predicted. The semifinals at the French Open matches Lindsay Davenport's best ever at Roland Garros. And it's a great sign for her moving forward. But I still like she seems so stubborn tactically.
0: It's a huge result for her. She's back in the top 10. She's still very young. I just hope that perhaps David Taylor, who apparently is her new coach, was formerly with Sam Stozer, Nami Osaka, and Yelena stepenko. That he's able to bring something different to her game, to take her to the next level. Maybe she should just hope to not have to play Sloane again in these big matches.
1: <laughs> Maybe well, that's the problem. It could. I mean, there is a matchup issue as well. I think. What else happened on the women's side? Let's go back to the the women's final or the aftermath. I, I mean, Sloane showed a lot of her personality that we don't always get to see. She apparently in the press corps gets a lot of criticism for being shallow and not very uh, forthcoming. Her answers aren't very expansive. Mary Carrillo during the match yesterday was defending Sloan, saying, you know, the press thinks she's so shallow, but I just, I'm just trying to convince them that Sloan is great because they work together on Tennis Channel. Mm-hmm. Um, when Sloan was on her motorized moped, what did uh, Ted Robinson call it? A portable moped. Okay, right. And I, th- I think there is something there. Not all players or people in general could thrive in that sort of press conference environment, right? It's very controlled. It's people kind of shouting questions at you and you're just in the center there. It's possible that you don't show your best self or you're not feeling the most generous in that situation. So I, I believe when Mary says, well, when I worked with her, like, we got to see a totally different side. That makes so much sense to me. And when Sloane was on Tennis Channel, she was great. It's
0: more than just the setting not being
1: conducive to her showing her personality.
0: It's a lack of willingness to do it. And rather than <laughs> chastise her okay. for that being the case, maybe ask the reasons why. And I think there's probably a lot of good reasons for it. You know, that whole that article that came out where she kind of came for Serena saying, you know, well, Serena's not my mentor. And she delineated all these things, listed them out, one, two, three, four, that Serena has done to her
1: (laughs) Uh, post I Made You. Yeah. I mean, there have been these interviews where Sloane said entirely too much. Yes. So recently she's sort of been airing in the other direction.
0: And also maybe she feels hard done by it. Maybe she felt like some stuff was taken out of context that she doesn't trust the media. I think there's a trust level there. Oh, definitely And we, definitely al- we also talked about how she's not... Players like Sloane in this day and age of her generation are not reliant on regular traditional press conferences and, and press avenues to get their personality out. Like, we're talking about this here, saying, well, she doesn't really show her personality in press, but what does that really matter to Sloane? Sloane is able mm-hmm. to show her personality on Snapchat, on Instagram.
1: And on, on the stage at the Billie Jean King Tennis Center. Yeah. Like, these are the things that people remember, These are huge things.
0: Nobody, no regular person is searching out press conference transcripts or videos to see what Sloane is like in press and then judge her for it. And so my question now is, we've, it'd be hypocritical of us to sit here and and chastise her for that because we've given so many players a pass, especially, most notably, Venus Williams.
1: (laughs) You know, but... right.
0: With Venus, she gets that pass because of who she is, how much she's done, how much she's contributed to the game, and where she is in her career right now. Mm-hmm. You know, she has paid her dues. Has somebody like Sloane Stevens paid her dues to feel like she doesn't have to participate in that process?
1: I mean, like she participates.
0: You know it, what I mean. Yeah. Because there is there's the element of not wanting to play the game and do these quote-unquote favors for the journalist to help them do their job. But there's also the the part of promoting the game for the WTA. That's a, That's another part of it as well. And so has she done enough or paid her dues enough for us to be like, well, whatever? That was not a rhetorical question.
1: Oh, you want me to answer yeah, that? I do, yes. Well, I mean, that is a very loaded question. Because the players are obligated to do press for the WTA, but do they have to like that you're presupposing that that is something that they should do that they should be ethically obligated to do it right now they just have to because it's their job
0: yeah but the point is should she be thought of differently for not playing the game
1: um i don't know i mean she goes and does press and goes through the motions she doesn't bear her soul most of the time which i think is fine
0: i'm trying to get from you should we have a blanket venus rule for all players who just don't <laughs> give a shit or should we no, make no. distinctions
1: because not everyone is venus and she's been out here for 20 that's something years. all i'm
0: trying to get at
1: here okay <laughs> sloan is it turns out we've never seen her lose a final but it turns out she's very charming and very gracious when she loses a final there were some wonderful moments in yesterday's trophy presentation simona was kind of hugging her trophy down near her chest And Sloane was like, hello, hello! you're supposed to put it up, hold it up. And she demonstrated how to do it. It was a very cute moment.
0: In the many interviews that she had to give afterward, you could tell that losing sucked for her. (laughs) Mm. She did not enjoy it. Which, for all the people who think that Sloane doesn't really give a shit about tennis, and it's all about the money, that, I mean, look at that. Because there were moments where her voice was quivering, While she was trying to find the right words, and she still found all the right words. (laughs) And then she went into press and she
1: uh, came for some wigs. Oh my lord, she really did. She called out a few journalists, not by name, but said, you know, a few of you were saying last year that, oh, she can't win anywhere but North America. Look how bad her record is in other countries. But I made the French Open final and I feel like that's pretty good. Like, I'm, I'm going in the right direction. And, and I'm talking said,
0: about you, you, <laughs> all of you, and you.
1: <laughs> and of course, the press loves this stuff. Like, they eat it up. I would like to,
0: at this point, issue a, a warning to, sadly, Dr. Scholes, use you as a cautionary tale. Because, pretty much precisely, when Sloan was up 632 Love, you were out here on Twitter gloating and being... Huh.
1: I, girl, I told you gloating is not cute. James did. Keep it we, cute. We've
0: told you many times. and uh, Because
1: the match was not over.
0: And Sloan only won not even a handful of games the rest of the way.
1: I can't believe you exposed him that way. Like, we really owe him a drink or something.
0: I will gladly buy him that drink, but I feel like he needed to be said. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we move on to a third La Undecima?
1: A (laughs) third... That would confuse me for a moment. Yeah, uh, the men's tournament, as has been the case for a few majors running, had considerably less intrigue than the women's, I would say. The winner was not really in doubt at any moment, except for the first set against Diego Schwartzman. (laughs)
0: That said, it was not as foregone a conclusion as as last year's tournament, where Rafa didn't lose a set. It wasn't just that he lost that first set to Schwarzman. It was that he was pushed in quite a few sets. Mm. Like a lot of those sets didn't feel settled, if that makes sense.
1: Right, which is crazy because he won every set except for one. Like it's, it's strange that he's so dominant on the surface and at this tournament that we're parsing sets like that. Because even the most dominant champions should be pushed in sets. But yeah, I, I would say he's looked a little, I described it as pissy, but maybe on edge.
0: We've seen a mix of nerves and, as you said, being on edge more so as he's gotten older, I would say. Mm-hmm. And somewhat inexplicably, at certain points in matches where you would think he has no business losing confidence, he loses confidence... ...likely to nerves. Right. And it's this business of... ...as you get older... ...you're more susceptible to nerves... ...it would appear. And even the greatest players... ...are not immune... ...to falling victim to that.
1: I think... Well, ...we've seen it with Serena a little bit... ...especially with these... ...huge champions... ...that they realize they're staring... ...down the barrel of... ...old age. Right? Like they know there are... So, ...only so many more chances... When you're 21, it's like, well, I could do this forever. You feel like a kid, but in the early to mid-30s, your career is finite. Rafa says in almost every interview now, I, I know that I will have a life after tennis. I know that tennis cannot last forever. So here we are. He enjoys these moments. Clearly, they're really important to him, as we saw in the trophy presentation. But, yeah, I think he realizes there are only so many more chances that I have at this. There are two other things at play,
0: I think. It's not just the race against time for your career. It's the race against achievement and staring down the barrel of your own lofty standards, what's expected of you mm. and what's, what's ahead of you, the, the great achievements that are just seemingly a stone's throw away, but still take some doing to get there. <laughs> right. And for them, even though they're great and they've been great for a long time, that's still a new rung on the ladder that they've not yet gotten to. And when you couple that with the nerves, it becomes, it com- becomes daunting for them. And we've heard from Rafa a lot in recent years where he, without fail, says that every match is a danger match. And you kind of take it as, oh, well, that's just Rafa. But increasingly, it might just be it's a danger match for Rafa himself, more so than his opponent. <laughs> right. You know, And we saw that with Serena, particularly in 2015, with the run for the calendar year Grand Slam. Yeah. With that semifinal against Roberto Vinci. And looking back with the documentary, when we got to see her in the moments leading up to that match, all these things are coming out of her mouth, and we're not believing any of them. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And we're not even sure she's believing them in the moment. It's like she's saying things that she thinks she should be saying because she's Serena Williams, but the the weight of the moment is so palpable.
1: So let's talk about this men's final. Rafa beat... Dominic team six four six three six two. Dominic came ready to fight, right? Like I I think his strategy was throw everything and the kitchen sink. I mean, just throttle serves. His average serve speed was insane during this match, his highest of the tournament. To be clear, uh, that is not unlike any other match for Dominic. This too. is true. But it's like <laughs> that plus You know, dialed up to 11. This is how Dominic plays, but even more so against Rafa. He's beaten Rafa on clay several times. And clearly he knows how to do it, but does anyone know how to do it at Roland Garros? Over best of five. And in this case, Dominic didn't get to test that. He didn't win a set at all, right? The margins for
0: Rafa's opponents are so razor thin. Dominic falls behind Love 2 in the first set, is able to get to 4-all, Rafa struggles through a service game, holds for 5-4, and then after you've done so much work to get to that point, much like Del Potro in the semi-final, Del you would not be inaccurate to describe his first set against Rafa as a set that got away.
1: Mm.
0: He likely played better than Rafa in that first set. But once you've gotten to the point where you've not been able to capitalize on those opportunities and you've let that first set go, the task is its just indescribable. Oh, yeah.
1: And I mean, Dominic's play in the first set, in losing that set, it was really just a blip. Like It was a very short period of not-so-great play that lost in that set. It was one game. It, right.
0: At the 4-5 game, Dominic played... One of the absolute worst service games you will ever see in a championship match. And that gifted the first (laughs) set to Rafa. Broke him at love. It was astoundingly bad.
1: Man, tennis scoring though is just so unforgiving. Because he played really good tennis for like a good 40-45 minutes. And then you put in 60 seconds of mediocre play and like that's that on that. And that's
0: your window to capitalize on Rafa's nerves. Once Rafa has that set in the bag,
1: it's... Well, it's smooth sailing, pretty much.
0: Well, not smooth sailing, necessarily, but he's able to open up in ways that he wasn't in the first set. And then your task becomes that much harder.
1: It wasn't smooth sailing because Rafa had that finger cramp. (laughs) What the hell was that?
0: But by the time it got to that point, that was, Ruff was already was, up a set.
1: It was late in the third. Yeah, right? It was
0: up two sets and a break in the third. Mm-hmm. It would have been still too much to ask for a team to come back and win. Oh, yeah. What it, I've heard, I've read many different things. The last I read coming from his camp was that his wrist was taped too tightly. And so it affected the middle finger mm. and he cramped in the middle finger.
1: And he walked off the court in the middle of a game and sat down in his chair. I was very confused by that. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently, yes, you can do that, but for more severe injuries.
0: Shout out to Hurley Tennis, who made a joke that I'm still laughing about right now. He said it was just an all an elaborate ploy for Rafa to be able to incognito give people the middle finger. <laughs> <laughs> Kudos to Dominic Team though, because he tried. As much as the score was against him, even in the third set, even when Rafa was serving for the match, he tried his best. He was still trying as if it were a tied match in that final game. Mm -hmm. And Rafa lost four championship points before Dominic's backhand return sailed long, and that was the end of it. What do you say about Dominic and how he acquitted himself in his first Grand Slam final.
1: Oh, I think considering the circumstances, it was very good. The GOAT won, what, four games against Rafa in one of the French Open finals? You were so two thousand eight. <laughs> <laughs> so he's already done better than that.
0: You know, that is the context that I want to just keep bringing up over and over and over again. <laughs> because for folks who want to diminish Rafa and his achievements on, on clay in particular, how do you make the argument, and this is not to get into... A goat argument right now I'm just poking fun at folks who want to say that well Rafa's only good on one surface but yet with that argument being in service of your own goat Roger Federer how does that reflect when Ra- when Federer is only able to win four or five games in one final against Rafa mm. like that's crazy and I think it adds this other context to what other players are able to do against Rafa at the French Open when he's playing well Dominic is a player who's beaten Rafa the most on clay over the last three seasons. He's beaten him three times, I believe. And if if that's not enough to hang your hat on, this will, this will add to it. I think he acquitted himself fairly well.
1: He did. It's one more step. It's his first Grand Slam final. I think he has a very good shot of winning this title one day. Maybe not against Rafa. Maybe against the 35-year-old Rafa, if he's still around.
0: Rafa in his acceptance speech says I know you'll win this title very soon
1: and I'm just I'm just
0: sitting here with Serena Williams coming to mind in her (laughs) hospital bed Uh when she's asked to respond to uh, Olympia winning Wimbledon in 15 to 20 years and she says not if I'm still
1: around (laughs) and I'm like oh my god Rafa yeah how soon do you mean poor Ken Rosewall oh my god They did this great tribute to Ken Rosewall, who won the very first open French championships in 1968. In the midst of the 1968 uprising in France. In the the United States as well. Yeah, but in France, you know, there were general strikes all over. A lot of players didn't make it to Paris because there were no trains running. There were no metros running. Uh, It was just... Like, it was the worst situation to have the first French Open. Christopher Clary published a piece in the New York Times that was really interesting that talked about what it was like to be in Paris at that time and just kind of what it was like to be in the dawning of Open-era tennis. Uh, but Ken Rosewall gave a little speech, presented the trophies, and just made a big faux pas, He was I think at- accidentally.
0: <laughs> he was asked to opine on what he thought about the match.
1: And he said, we would have liked to see a few more sets. Dominic was a little bit disappointing with his game today. (laughs) We were both like, huh? I think think it was clear that he meant Dominic was a little disappointed. That's what I wanted. Like, I want to give the benefit of the doubt here. Because they showed Dominic and he was just kind of laughing or whatever. And maybe, you know... English is Dominic's, like, fourth or 27th language. Maybe the disappointing ed suffix did not register with him. But uh, us English speakers were like, holy shit, that was savage. Initially, I thought,
0: well, well, that is what you get to do when you're in your 80s, right? You get to say whatever you want and have people just have to deal with it.
1: Yeah, sign me up.
0: (laughs) But then Frith, at Plucky Loser on Twitter was quick to point out that Ken Rosewall is one of the sweetest men you'll ever meet. And it was very much likely disappointed. Right. And that folks should really keep the Twitter outrage to a minimum because like, this is one of tennis's greats. And he wasn't out here trying to snatch
1: anybody's wig. Definitely not. And she also said he is mega old, <laughs> which, which I appreciated because she used one of Dominic's words, yeah. mega.
0: That was impressive. Shall we talk about the massive elephant in the room?
1: (laughs) Okay. Um, This magazine interview with Rafa in an Italian women's magazine has been circulating on Saturday ahead of the men's final. And within it, it had some comments about his view on equal prize money. First, a disclaimer. We've only seen these quotations in one source. One person tweeted it, and it's made the rounds. I haven't seen it be confirmed anywhere, and I don't believe that any of the reporters asked Rafa about it in press today, which could mean several things. It could mean that they don't believe that it's reliable, or that they don't believe that it's relevant.
0: Or that Rafa was running too late for press, which apparently was more than 40 minutes late, <laughs> right. and it may have coincided with the demolition party that was being held.
1: Uh, they were actually given free reign to draw on all the walls and everything because the press room is going to be demolished as part of the renovation of and Garros.
0: It was pretty cool. It was. Because you saw a lot of folks quoting some of the memorable things that have been said by mm-hmm. players over the years, like the 25 languages. Or she
1: had her hand up. Uh-huh. <laughs> which I did not find funny. It's I'm still salty after all these years. But back to what Rafa said.
0: Another disclaimer, we are Rafa fans. If you don't know by now, we have to put that out there as well. Mm. We are Rafa fans.
1: So he was asked about equal prize money between the men and the women. He said, supposedly, that he believes that whoever has the most followers should earn the most money. Basically, that in some industries it's different that women make more than men, that female like mo- even. <laughs> that female models make more than male models. You know, these things they happen based on revenue and pop- popularity, basically. Do you know what that
0: argument is like? It's that argument when you run into somebody, usually an older family member, who starts regurgitating Fox News bullshit.
1: It's uh, <laughs>
0: like you've heard that one thing, that one talking point about one issue on mm-hmm. Fox News and like I'm going to bring that to the argument. that
1: that one anecdote, like in the entire universe, that can prove your point. You know, it, it does not an argument make. So I think we would not have any integrity if we didn't bring it up. And because this is a topic that is very close to our hearts and we feel very strongly about, if we didn't criticize Rafa because we like him, that would be crazy.
0: It'd be shameful right it was it was never in doubt like that wasn't that was not even <laughs> right. a consideration for me, and I think it it should go without saying at this point that you what you just said we shouldn't have to like put a disclaimer about our integrity like that this this is the crux of the show, and that's why when we were talking, I was like, yeah, like obviously mm. and like we have to grapple with these these feelings this is part part of being a fan in modern-day sport. Your faves are all flawed.
1: And and they're out here showing you parts of themselves that you never would have seen uh, 20 years ago.
0: Is it a surprise to us that Rafa may have said this?
1: No. It, if he did say this, it's not a surprise at all. Like, I, I know that he comes from a conservative upbringing. He's very traditional... But I don't think that you have to be a revolutionary to believe in equal prize money.
0: No, it's about a line of thinking that protects one's own self-interest, right? Absolutely. We've talked about a lot extensively on this podcast when this issue has been brought up so many times over the years, be it Djokovic in Indian Wells, that period of a couple months where it was a huge issue in tennis, That this economic argument against equal prize money does not hold water. It just does not. Because what the ATP Tour is benefiting from now and what folks are saying, well, we bring all the eyes to tennis. No, you don't. Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal bring the eyes to tennis. Mm -hmm. Serena Williams brings the eyes to tennis. You want to use Rafa and maybe Andy Murray? And you know what? For that matter, show me, the, show me whatever stats you have because I would guarantee you more people show up to see Gal Mofis than they do to see Stan Wawrinka and even Andy Murray at these tournaments.
1: Not Andy Murray.
0: Outside of Britain? I'm not so sure. Like, I, in my job, currently I'm a server, I just had this moment tonight where one of my regulars, we connected over the fact that these women are in their 80s. Or at least late 70s and I discovered that they are big tennis fans and we got to this like 20-minute discussion They were my last table about tennis and this one lady was like man you know who I just love Gal Mofis <laughs> and that's just universal mm. you go to any tennis tournament once Mofis is on the practice court the the fans flock to him like he is an absolute draw to, to the to men's tennis and so you have at most a handful of male tennis players are active draws and what you have that coincides with that is this idea that's been deeply ingrained in all societies presumably that men's sport is better than women's sport that's what we're fighting against and kids learn this boys learn this from a very young age once they're old enough to not get their ass beaten by girls because they develop physically faster then they run with this idea for the rest of their lives. Mm. And women buy into it to a certain extent as well, that the default and naturally this business of higher, faster, stronger, that men are naturally better at sports because they can hit a ball harder or run faster. Like There are other metrics to qualify and quantify athletic endeavor.
1: But also, there have been periods when women's tennis was more popular than men's. There have been... Grand Slam finals where the ratings are bigger for women versus men and vice versa, like these things happen, they go in cycles. Is men's tennis more popular in general than women's? Probably. But are there reasons for that? Aside from the quality, is it because it's more difficult to find women's tennis? Is it because women's tennis is being devalued in many areas?
0: Is it because folks are just not seeking out women's tennis, that they're not interested in women's tennis? The fact that you are not interested in women's sport does not make men's sport more valuable writ large as a fact.
1: Right. So whenever these things come up, you get a lot of fans in your mentions explaining macroeconomics. Everybody went to University of Chicago School of Economics. All of a sudden, thank you. I can read. I will do my own research. I understand how economics works what is annoying is the idea that well that's the market period that we must trust the invisible hand of the market that capitalism will fix everything and that's just what's right and i mean that is a very limiting way of thinking and it's boring and i'm not interested
0: and that rafa can't see that he himself is one of the biggest draws and assets to men's tennis and why he would even be able to make that argument now, right? Set aside all the flaws. That he can't see that folks will be out here to watch Putin save him more than they will Sergei <laughs> you know the, the depth of the women's tour far outweighs the men's tour because that's a matter of competitiveness. It's not about mm. higher, faster, stronger. And mm-hmm. so on a week-to-week basis... The earlier rounds are giving you these matchups that are far more entertaining. And how do we quantify that? How does your economics account for entertaining?
1: Well, for those people it's only revenue. That's the only thing. But revenue does not drive prize money, and we know that. Sponsors pay for prize money, and tournaments set prize money. What I think like a lot of it boils down to men in this in this case men or people in power, in general, feel that they have something to lose when other people gain. So if women were to be paid equally, it's set up as if, well, I don't want to give up any of what I have to accommodate. Like, as if they're giving to charity. But it's not like that. It's not their money they're giving away. Pay equity is about raising the lower pay, not not lowering everybody to to this equilibrium. That's how it works. The other thing is that, man, like, fandoms are crazy as hell. Insane. I have seen some, like, totally mental reasoning over this Rafa thing. I've been told to get out of the fandom. We don't want you. Like, voted off the island because I dared to disagree with one thing that the fave said or did get a hold of yourself really is it a surprise that
0: any man any man should espouse something that's misogynistic <laughs> no
1: it's a surprise what that word... there is any that it's a surprise that Andy Murray exists he's a fucking unicorn <laughs> right
0: Andy Murray is a fucking unicorn <laughs> and people are going back and and throwing out all these quotes from years ago and one brilliant thing that came out was that from 2007 when Venus was going through the equal prize money thing at Wimbledon. And all these men, Tommy Haas, who so many people, us included, fawn over and like There's previously, a previously yeah. fawned over and lusted over, was showing his ass then. Any number of ATP players were showing their ass then, not having any qualms about speaking their mind. And mm-hmm. Andy Murray at, what, 18 years old? was saying, yeah, this is great.
1: Right. <laughs> when he didn't have to? No. When there was resistance in his own locker room? When there was pressure to be like one of the boys? At, at Wimbledon.
0: Mm-hmm. At Wimbledon. And so, man, if, if we are at a point where we can't grapple with being a fan and the problematic side of our faves and have the two coexist, I don't see what's the point. Like, is that a life worth living?
1: Mm-hmm. Like the, this is why I said a few months ago I'm not interested in fandoms anymore. I just I'm just gonna like who I like and take it with a grain of salt. The other thing before we move on, the idea that it was badly translated, no, it wasn't. I speak Italian. It was translated quite well, actually. So just you can just move on from that. I saw someone, make the valiant effort of translating the entire interview. Until they got to the paragraph in question in question and they got tired <laughs> So that was interesting the paragraph in question was translated quite well
0: No, if you want to talk about whether he was misquoted or if it was a fabrication well, That's the that's, that's the a total thing. thing that that yeah possibly could still come out, but if it is as It's suspected to be then for us. It's really fucking bad. Like there's no two ways about it We are disappointed Are we still happy that Rafa won his 11th? Yes. Like, do we equate it to Tennis Sangren? No. No. Like, there are degrees. There are degrees of fuckery.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's just one of those things that is disappointing, yes, but not entirely surprising. And uh, it's news, but we have to move on.
0: A few other men, etc. It's funny how... Well, it's absolutely not funny. But... uh, Whenever we get into a lopsided episode in terms of men's coverage and women's coverage, it's because there's just so much fucker in the men's <laughs> side. <laughs> it's never about the actual tennis, I right? Know.
1: It's again to quote one of uh, one of our the friends of this podcast: the men are just all such assholes. <laughs> Which I suppose is I don't want to expose the person, oh, okay? But uh, I suppose is interesting in its own way.
0: Shout out to Juan Martin Del Potro, who is back in the top five, who made the semifinals of the French Open, his first semifinal at the French Open since 2009, where he narrowly lost to Roger Federer. He is well and truly back. That said, he had zero answers for Rafa, especially after that first set. He hung with him for the, <laughs> the better part of that first set, and once that was it, that was it.
1: Mm. Novak Djokovic reached the quarterfinals uh, lost to Cechinato, we were given a tutorial from an Italian journalist who screamed "Cechinato" <laughs> at John McEnroe. Thank you for that. And Nova where is Novak? I, he, I mean, he was clearly devastated by that loss, and uh, it was hard to watch. And anyone who took pleasure in that, I, I don't get you. But I think when I mean, it was a. It was a very
0: entertaining match. Mm-hmm. Djokovic, in the high-stakes moments, played well. He didn't serve great. He had seemingly some injury issues that he was maybe working through in the first set, which may have hampered his serve speed or what have you. It's already been an issue for him for the better part of the last year and a half. But he was able to hang uh, hang with 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 uh, Cechinato. That's that's crazy. crazy. He, yeah. But they played some walloping rallies, and it was entertaining tennis. It was entertaining AF, right?
1: I I just think it's not so doom and gloom for Novak. No, I I think he you know he did well to get to the quarterfinals. This is obviously a bad loss. This but this is a guy who was on a roll and who was beating giants left if, and right. I
0: struggle with that. Is it a bad loss? It's a bad loss in that in name only. This is somebody checking out who'd never won a Grand Slam main draw match before. Mm -hmm. And so if you say that somebody like that (laughs) is going to beat Novak Djokovic in the quarterfinals of a French Open, you'd say you're out of your mind. But when you get into the match, and this is where matchups come into play and you actually play the matches and you watch the match, it wasn't that shocking.
1: Mm.
0: Well, Because, only because I don't think Novak played that badly. Did he play to the level of a six-hour final against Rafa at the Australian Open? Absolutely not. Will he ever get back to that level? I don't know. But coming from where he's been, hello, Indian Wells and Miami this year, that was, that was as dispiriting a performance back-to-back as you'd ever hope to ever mm. experience as a Novak fan, I would assume. And so you get to Rome, he makes the semifinals, you think maybe he's turned the corner, you look at his draw, we had just remarked that he had an easy draw and that he got checking out during the quarterfinals.
1: It was like, well, right. lucky him. I mean, I thought he was going to make the final.
0: Yeah, and maybe that's more shame on us mm-hmm. than it is shame on Novak.
1: <laughs> I I mean, I don't know where his head is at, but I don't think it's entirely dispiriting, having made the quarterfinals here and lost a, an obviously heartbreaking match. But he was not... I, I don't know that I've seen him like that after a match before. He, cho- he plopped himself down in a small
0: press room. You're really beholden to that verb, aren't you? What? Because you have written on the agenda,
1: no lay plops. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it was described. Like, he just put himself in that tiny little room and was like, here is my press conference is going to be in here. I'm not going in the main press room. It wasn't really, uh, I mean, apparently people were like scrambling to get in. There was very little room and somebody got it on camera he was just giving very brief one-word answers not not mean not rude just to the point let me get out of here and he was asked is this the most difficult loss of your career he said no 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 there there have been many difficult losses in my career Uh, but it was it was strange to see him like that you pointed out to me and I don't know if
0: this was an original thought on your part. Maybe you got it from somewhere else. I don't know. <laughs> we'll correct see. me if I'm <laughs> wrong. But you said it was very savvy on his part because he was able to avoid TV and
1: and having the interview recorded. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure other people thought that too. And it turns out the interview was recorded, but not through like the proper channels.
0: For the best of five folks out there who are interested in that debate, this is absolutely not something that we've chimed in on on this podcast, Mm. nor is it something that we're particularly interested in. But take note that if this were a best of three event, Cecchinato would have been out in the first round. He came from two sets down in the first round to rally and win in five before making it all the way to the semifinals. So there's that. As for Mr. Cecchinato...
1: Well, well, we talked about the the previous... Ban that had been overturned by the, or the Italian Federation and then was overturned. Clearly this came up. Like there was some reporting on it. Ben Rothenberg in particular kind of filled us in about the particulars of the case. A story that he'd written a couple of years ago. Right. And there were some people who were annoyed that reporters were talking about this arguing that why do you always have to be so negative? Why do you have to bring this stuff up? This is a feel-good story. Todd Woodbridge.
0: I was wondering if you're going to call yeah. names.
1: <laughs> Todd Woodbridge went right after Ben
0: on Twitter. Saying, and... why you got to be so negative all the damn time? <laughs> right.
1: And so to me, I mean, you put this on the agenda, but to me this is interesting because sports reporting is a it's kind of a, a different space, right? It's not breaking news. It's if you're hiring reporters, you're hiring them to do a job, but sports is so dependent on access and sports reporting in particular is not always objective or totally impartial. Like you have sports writers who are on beats who sometimes celebrate the sport they're covering or celebrate certain athletes or like there's a I feel a little bit more leeway in that. Mm-hmm. Right. And especially now that reporters have social media personalities as well, the stories that they publish may be quite different than their social media uh, persona. Like they might have a little more freedom to, to cape for somebody on social media or okay. be more critical. What's your point? But the point is, it's a little bit murkier in sports reporting, but I tend to push back when someone says, well, you shouldn't be so negative and because otherwise what are you there for you're not being paid by the tours to be a cheerleader for the sport Mm -hmm. you're not being paid to grow the sport
0: and also this was a piece that had been written a while back it was a story that had a lot of misinformation about it folks were asking all over twitter what is the actual story did he get caught was he banned what was the actual deal with this and the answers to that were all in that piece right so for Todd Woodbridge to be out here dragging Ben Rothenberg because the story affronted him and his good feeling sensibilities about sport in this fairy tale run, like that's absurd. We've lived through this, and I liken it to what Sangren brought us and mm. wrought upon us in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> with his fairy tale run. I guess we just have to be wary of all these fairy tale men runs in the future <laughs> because <laughs> checking out is scripting this amazing story, winning more money than he's ever won in any event after one round probably. Mm. And he has this story this past that's following him and it's something that absolutely should be reported on. It's a part of the story you cannot separate the two, the good the good feeling of the story and then his past. Just because you have this run doesn't mean that that goes away. That's part of your story, Marco. Mm-hmm. Sorry. And Todd Woodbridge is an athlete. He's been around the sport long enough to not be behaving like...
1: Like he's new.
0: Like he's like new. he was acting and brand new. Like a put-upon fanboy. Yeah. It's, it's crazy to me. It was beyond a bad look. But to your point about sport reporting and the sometimes blurred lines, and this is not like a, a specific indictment on Ben, I, I've i always felt that sport reporting and discourses around sport are better served by having biases laid bare on the table. Mm. Like you can still have meaningful discussions and maintain some level of objectivity. Like objectivity itself is such an abstract concept that you you don't know what that is in totality. You never do. Mm-hmm. Like every decision that's made in writing and reporting from an editorial perspective from a phrasing from choosing where paragraphs are laid in an article mm-hmm. their choices their subjectivity even, all over the place
1: and even which stories you choose to print
0: yeah and so if there is the context of who your faves are or owning what your biases are with reporting on an issue then you're able to maybe cut through a lot of the bullshit and the backlash that people can throw at you because like this is what's being said in spite of all that
1: right but what you suggest is at odds with every single north american newsroom i'm aware with of that i did a year of journalism their school. principles right
0: <laughs> but i'm saying i am we're not talking about reporting on the fire down the street we're talking about sport <laughs> specifically like why should the reader be out there trying to parse through your hidden meanings when you're writing about one player here and another player there? Mm. and what is the what is the actual meaning? And maybe that's a, a product of the rabid nature of fandoms and just going to to bat all over the place when you shouldn't be for your for your fave? Mm. But I feel like it makes it's helpful
1: moving on to the doubles winners, Erbert and Mauu. Won their first Roland Garros title, defeating the doubles number one, Mate Pavic and Marach. This is their third slam together. And they recently won Davis Cup together as well. These two, I mean, these two are tailor-made for Tumblr and Twitter slash fiction. Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) Hopping all over each other. Uh,
1: They clearly have a lot of affection for each other. And it's a joy to watch them play because of that. Can we talk about Mao's very cute little boy running across the court and then doing that dance? Flossing. That's what it's called. What is that dance? So when is... I go to
0: the dentist tomorrow and they ask, have you yeah. been flossing? What should I say?
1: Well, you could say <laughs> I'm trying my best. But only children know how to do Like this little dance is just mind-blowing to me. How does, it's like every child in the world knows how to do it. Do they have secret communication networks that we don't know about? Where are they
0: taught this? How do they find Uh, this out?
1: And how, I have never seen a child mess it up.
0: How do they all know how to do it? Somebody has to be teaching them. You can't just (laughs) naturally floss from watching a video. So these children have to be flossing in groups. Right, right. Are there flossing parties? Uh, I mean. Is flossing the new bounce about? (laughs)
1: <laughs> ba- you mean a bounce house? I call it bounce house. Uh, That's the Jamaican word for it. I Thank mean, you very much. I mean, children's entertainment is such a mystery to us. Um, in women's doubles, Siniakova and Krejcikova defeated the Japanese team of Hozumi and Ninomiya. Sinjakova, who beat Victoria Azarenka in the first round here. The Czech team is so deep, it's not even funny.
0: In mixed doubles, Leticia Chen and Ivan Dodic beats Pavic and Dabrowski in the final. Gabby Dabrowski was aiming to defend her title that she won last year with Rohan Bapana. Comes up short in that final, and she was not happy about it. It <laughs> no. was very plain in that <laughs> trophy presentation.
1: And uh, Pavic and Dabrowski were the Australian Open champions. Pavic actually lost in both the mixed and the men's mm-hmm. final. And Letitia Chan has recovered from losing Martina Hingis... And has won yet another major title. In the juniors, we have two children from the Patrick Moratoglu Academy, which that believe believe me, that was not lost on people. He was there in the stands. He's gonna use this for publicity. But good on Corey Goff or Coco Goff, who's fourteen years old. Which surprisingly, there have been five girls younger than that to win the French Open juniors Martina Hingis at 12. Right, twice, 12 and
0: 13. Well, I mean, Jennifer
1: Caporetti was out here winning tour-level matches at, what, eight years old? She was also one of the winners of the French Open girls title. Uh, That's just great. Like, that is so young. And on the boys' side, Tseng-Chun-Shi from Taiwan, who also goes to the Brodaclou Academy, won the boys' title.
0: A couple more things before we finish up. Do you want to give an update on the James Blake situation?
1: Well, I don't really want to, but we should. The officer who tackled James Blake and has been the subject of several other excessive force complaints in New York, the case was seen by the Civilian Complaint Review Board, which is an independent panel that reviews complaints by citizens of New York City against the police. Uh... The prosecutor in the case recommended that Officer Frascator lose 10 vacation days, and he was sentenced to lose 5 vacation days, and that's it. This is... Like, first of all, aim (laughs) a little higher. I mean, this is... He had... (laughs) He went after someone who was famous, so that's why we know his name. But this is not the first time... That this officer has had complaints against him for excessive force. We know that the mayor is hated by the NYPD. We know that police unions are damn near tyrannical and are deeply reactionary organizations. So, the, I don't know. I mean, the little that I know about the NYPD and its relations with the community, like, something needs to change because officers are being protected at every turn. And that's not unique to the New York Police Department. Right, It's a, it's a punch
0: to the gut, truly. I, my, my heart goes out to James Blake.
1: It's a punch to the gut because James Blake is somebody who will be fine. He is privileged in his way. Mm-hmm. Imagine the many, many men and women who are not famous enough for their reviews to go public. Like, so a five vacation days loss is kind of the best case scenario, what's the worst case scenario? That that these complaints are just never heard because the people are not important? And I also look at this cynically as an opportunity for the
0: NYPD to show sincerely or not that they're taking it seriously. Like, this is, you don't have to deal with a wrongful death suit. Mm. You Your officer didn't murder a black man, which happens all over the country. This was somebody, James Blake, who's been very generous with dealing with you.
1: Because he didn't sue.
0: Exactly. And there were some concessions made as far as uh, like sensitivity stuff, right? That mm. some program was implemented. But you could have made some stance to show that you've taken this seriously with this officer. That, as you said, has made several... Missteps in the past, and you chose not to. Mm-hmm. Like the you, sh- who is doing the PR for the NYPD? Like, how do you think this is gonna play?
1: Well, why do they? They don't need PR. Like, what, he, why he, do they care?
0: He doesn't get to take five t- five days vacation. Like, what?
1: Right, but the thing is, why did do, they don't need to be liked? Like, clearly, like there, are, if there are no consequences, why do they need good PR? They're the police. No, yeah, but
0: if you are con- genuinely concerned about community liaising well they're and not community building <laughs> they're clearly then not this seemed like an easy mm-hmm. no-brainer way to show that you you take people's complaints seriously right and obviously obviously this is not the case mm-hmm. we're gonna finish with margaret court i don't know how many times we've had to girl by <laughs> her on the show
1: and this time it's not even something that she's done no i don't care
0: I'm just tired of seeing her face and her name on my TV screen when I'm watching TV. And in this instance, we keep getting reminded about her Grand Slam tallies when other players, namely Rafa and Serena, achieve greatness. I can tell you firsthand that I did not know Margaret Court's achievements pre-open era and post-open era until I was well into my 20s. because Until growing
1: Serena up started. Yeah, close. growing up,
0: it was 18. It was Chrissy and Martina, 18, that was the number that was shown every single time. And then Steffi passed it. And then it was Steffi and then 18. And that was it. And if they wanted to be cute, they would show a separate graphic. We're <laughs> right. like, oh my god, that's some history. I should what is the open era? I should look out, look that up. But everything about tennis on TV discounted pre open era statistics for the majority of my life. Until Serena Williams started to challenge. Until she tied Chrissy and Martina. Then it was like, oh, well, we should have five names on the screen. It should be (laughs) uh, Serena's at 17. There's Chrissy and Martina at 18. And then let's throw Helen Wills Moody in there. And then let's throw throw, uh, Margaret Court. Like, that's cute. And so Serena has uh, had to deal with Toppling Margaret Court, mm-hmm. like let's be real, that's a number that's in her mind's eye. Patrick's talked about it on the documentary, right? right. And now at Roland Garros this year, most titles won at one event. It's not enough that have, Rafa has yeah. ten at the French Open. Now it's like, well, well, has he beaten
1: Margaret Court? I have never seen her in that context before against Rafa, like. <laughs> Usually, we're begging them to put women's achievements alongside men's, right? Right. But but in this context, it's just so bizarre. Mm. Because, you know, people talk about the Australian Open titles pre-Open era, but it's worth a mention. I mean, there were draws that had, like, some of them had, like, 34 people in them, Mm -hmm. and 31 of them were Australian. I mean, it's, like, it sounds ridiculous, But it is
0: what it is. Just this tournament, we had to deal with the usual suspects. It's crazy to me. There's Mm. some... I'm not going to get totally messy. If you follow tennis Twitter, you will know one in particular. DM me if you want to (laughs) know. There's one... And it's not Ben Rothenberg. It's not always Ben Rothenberg. (laughs)
1: Oh, I know what you're talking about. There's
0: one reporter who always goes to the default of discrediting women's tennis by not giving them recognition.
1: And it's not like a one-time thing. It's It's like you've been called out like 35 times. It's repeat, it's repeat, it's repeat.
0: And this time, this person was like, oh my god, guys, Marco Cecchinato. He is the first Italian player to make the semifinals (laughs) of a Grand Slam since 1855. It is amazing!
1: Uh, meanwhile, like, the women just won Fed Cup, like, 24 times. Yeah. Uh, Schiavone have... <laughs> won the French Open. Panetta <laughs> won the U.S. We like... have
0: just exited the golden era of women's Italian tennis. Right. Where Flavia Panetta has won. Schiavone has won. She's made another final. Roberta Vinci fucked up all our lives in that semifinal mm-hmm. against and Serena Williams. Sarah
1: Arani made a Grand Slam final with that serve. I mean... <laughs> No, but these, rec- you know, as soon as Serena passes, if she passes Margaret Court, it's going to be like, well, she didn't win a major wearing a petticoat and a girdle <laughs> back in 1892, so her records are null and void. Did she? Or like when Rafa wins 12 and passes Margaret Court's 11, and be like, well, but somebody back in the 1910s won with one eye. Did he ever do that? Did
0: Serena hit that volley while holding holding a parasol? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) On that note, we have come to the end of a very long French Open recap. I am exhausted, frankly.
1: Mm -hmm. And we're going to do this again
0: in a few weeks for Wimbledon. Uh Uh-huh, we shall. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John.
1: And I'm James. I'm at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. This
0: is The Body
1: Serve. You
0: can find us on Twitter at The Body Serve. similarly on Instagram. Please hit us up on iTunes, give us a review. No matter the country you live in, we will still see it. We have all these aggregators that send us stuff, so we will see it. Thanks for listening along. Till next time.
1: Thank Stay you. Lucky. Thank you very much.